Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. We have uh, been taking a year to walk through following Jesus, and we've looked at several different things from attitudes to character to teachings that he did in the parables to last week and this week looking at miracles, and then next week we go right into our Advent season. And as we looked at miracles starting last week, I kind of said a miracle is something that's supposed to bring glory to God and let Jesus be seen for who he is. And so there are a lot of times when I think God's working and we need a word that amps it up, so we call it a miracle. And if I were to say somehow, well, if God works in everything, then in a sense, you go, well, then nothing is is without God working. And, And I think that's what I'd like to say. I think in Colossians 1, we get this um, kind of almost marvel, but a declaration from Paul that says, Jesus even holds things together. Uh, I remember being a high school student. I went to Washington High School just down the street, and um, my senior year, I had a late arrival, and I used to ride my motorcycle up to Mount Tabor, and uh, I read my Bible and look over the city before I went down into high school world. And I remember being up there one um, day and, and so, for one reason or another, I remembered something from a science class and uh, it told me that there was about 15 pounds per square inch uh, of pressure in our atmosphere. And I was looking at these trees, these mammoth trees in uh, Mount Tabor, looking at my skin and just saying, God, have you just released the pounds per square inch, we'd explode. These uh, trees would be atomic bombs. I, I, would, I would just, you know, poof, and no longer be here. Thank you just for, just for squeezing your universe into existence. You know, uh, I think we have a tendency to just take that for granted and somehow think that, that on the things that we can't handle, that's when we ask God to show up. And I think it's in that things we can handle that we miss just being naturally supernatural. And that's what I want to look at today, is what would it look like if we were just naturally supernatural? You heard this song, and, and, and what I like about the song is that it doesn't feel comfortable. It kind of pitches you between this idea that there's a God who does miracles, and if there's a God who does miracles, why am I in a storm? If he he can stop storms, then why does he even let storms happen? If he can heal disease, then why does he let disease happen? And we're caught in this tension of, it seems like there isn't any formula. I can't pray, pray, pray and get a yes. I can't behave and pray and get a yes. There doesn't seem to be anything I can do to make God move when I want him to. And yet he invites me to ask him to move in every, every area of our lives, everything that happens in our, in our world. One author said it this way, I needed to stop seeing myself as a self-contained unit. I needed to adopt the four pictures the New Testament provides for me, a vessel, a temple, a branch, a body with Christ as the head. In each of these pictures, I'm a hollow, I, I am hollow and designed to be filled and energized by another. I'm not a self-contained unit. 
Somehow that's the picture we have that we're supposed to be as self-contained and as self-competent as we possibly can and those places where we can't, that's where we ask God to just kind of fill in those cracks rather than you and I are designed as containers. Containers that the Holy Spirit lives in. Containers that Jesus lives in. Containers that the Father lives in. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell us in a way that that they express themselves through us. And and as we start looking at life that way, maybe we can see it from a little bit different perspective. The the parable, or I mean the miracle that that Lisa sang about is is in the three uh, first gospels of the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to look at it specifically today in Luke chapter eight. And as we look at Luke chapter eight, there's a couple things that happened before this miracle. First, Jesus tells a parable about four soils. And of those four soils, only one soil is fruitful. Then he tells a story about a lamp and that a lamp gets displayed rather than hidden. As though he's saying that in a natural world, there are unfruitful and there are unlit areas. And in a spiritual world, there is fruit and there is light, and that we're supposed to bear fruit and be light even in the world that's natural, and that's what makes it hard to be naturally supernatural, is because we somehow think that has to be that jacked up miracle rather than something that is just living out God's kingdom in a world that's almost um, hostile, if at least territory that is, is still to be advanced. Then he has a family, his family, his mother, his brothers. They come visit him. People say, your family's here. And he goes, my family is those who would do the will of God. And he talks about a natural family that's biological and a spiritual family that's a faith-based family. And in the midst of drawing some of those distinctions, uh, all three at one point or another just drop in this miracle in their context. And Luke's context seems to be kind of let the disciples have the opportunity to function in what he's just been teaching about. That in their own storm, are they gonna act according to the limits of their own resources, which would panic them, or are they going to live in the presence of the God who's with them? And we have a lot of songs that we sing that talk a lot about God. And the Psalms would have been their hymn book. And it talks a lot about God and all the things that he does. And there's several Psalms, there's over 15 Psalms that talk about a God who calms the waters. So they already knew there was a God who calmed the waters. Maybe they hadn't connected the dots to Jesus being that God. Maybe they're in process somehow. But I want to go ahead and just read the miracle out of Luke 8, picking up in verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got in the boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith, he asked. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. 
You might say, what a man of faith that in the midst of a storm that seems to be life-threatening, Jesus goes to sleep. Well, there are only two guys who fall asleep in the midst of a storm. One is Jesus, who is a a great man of faith, and one is um, Jonah, who doesn't seem to be a great man of faith. Someone who actually, when he hears God speak, runs the other way. And Jesus falls asleep, I believe, because he is able to differentiate himself, crisis, from who he is, and say this crisis doesn't mean who I am. Jonah wasn't able to do that. The disciples aren't able to do that. The sailors on the boat where Jonah is aren't able to do that. So that Jesus seems to be on mission for God, Jonah seems to be anti-mission for God. Jesus seems to be asleep because he's living according to a kingdom narrative. Jonah seems to be asleep because he's disengaged from the kingdom narrative. Jesus brings peace by being there. Jonah brings peace by being thrown overboard. Uh, When we look at the idea that the, the disciples' response, they have fear, they have amazement, they worship And the sailors on the boat, it says that they feared God, they offered sacrifices, and they made vows. Their response was to worship God. A follow-up, not just in the midst of the crisis, but even after the crisis, they said, he's the real deal. We're willing to align our lives with him. So now we're in trouble, because even being faced in the middle of a miracle, we don't even know what it looks like to live supernaturally. Because you and I could go, well, we don't live supernaturally. We don't see all these miracles. But here's two guys. Both of them have miracles happen right before their eyes. A storm that gets calmed and one of them is living away from God and one of them is living right into sync with the Father and is God himself. So I want to suggest that there's a way to live supernaturally. That, that it's almost like putting a set of glasses on, being able to see what's not seeable, live in a world where we're not getting cues from our senses. We get our cues from our faith. The Bible tells us that, that faith is living not by sight. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and he wrote this way, kind of disappointed. He writes, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And in chapter three, he says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Crazy that that Paul would say, I mean, Paul, you realize that Paul has just about every miracle that you can imagine Paul's been involved in. Even the idea that he didn't know when to quit teaching. He taught all night. 12-year-old boy is sitting on a windowsill. 12-year-old boy is bored out of his mind, falls out the windowsill and dies. And Paul brings him back to life. And Paul says, you want to know what, what your church would look like if I thought it was actually supernatural? There wouldn't be divisions. There wouldn't be jealousy. There'd be mercy and grace and love going on. And we're going, well, it just seems like we could whip that up without God. Really? Here's a church that's called basically a supernatural entity, and Paul's saying, I wish it was. 
but you've hijacked it and simply made it manageable, acting as mere humans. Look a little bit further in, in Revelation, in verse, chapters two and three, five out of seven churches are condemned for simply managing rather than living into God and leaning into the supernatural. Five out of the seven. It seems as though there's a response that is completely flat, that doesn't go vertical, that somehow is able to assess the situation and figure out what to do. And, and most of us have been coached to live in that world and with that motif well. And yet the Bible encourages us to, to somehow have our GPS going vertical rather than simply horizontal, to lean into what would it look like if God were to be God in this situation and if I were to be God's in this situation, if I were to be hollow and inhabited and he were to use my words and my touch and my encouragement in the life of someone else, what would that look like? Here's an example of what a worldly mindset looks like. And I'm not suggesting moral, I'm suggesting orientation. What narrative are you going to live through? So you lose your job. You lose, you lose a loved one. You lose your, um, your health. And you conclude, my life sucks. Or you get a job, a job you really like. Someone's added to your family and you're excited. Um, you're a CrossFit athlete and you go, my life's good. Both of those get defined by their circumstances. It doesn't mean that when it's bad, hey, pull out of that and don't get defined badly. But when things go well, go ahead and own that. Both of them get their definition from the horizontal. Rather than being able to rehearse something that says, birds eat and I'm more valuable than a bird. Flowers are clothed with style that, that isn't even available in New York. Um, I'm loved more than the trees, more than the flowers, more than the birds. And it doesn't matter whether I lose my job or get the job I love. It doesn't matter whether someone I know dies or someone I love has a child. In, in the midst of what I mean by it doesn't matter is that that's not who I am. I get to bring the work Jesus is doing into the circumstance. I get to bring the work Jesus is doing to thanksgiving. I get to bring the work Jesus is doing, and so do you, into Advent in this next four weeks. We get to celebrate Jesus in a way that those who only know presence will miss his presence. And we get to be that portable suitcase that brings him to company pit parties, that brings him to family gatherings, that brings him to worship services, that brings him to bear simply in the thoughts that are going on within your home. We get to be that kind of delivery system. So when we look at the miracle, the, the miracle isn't necessarily even what we're supposed to be fascinated with. What we're supposed to be fascinated with is how Jesus is fascinated that the disciples are afraid. How could you be afraid? How could this be alarming? How could your world have got so shrunk after hearing God 
speak, after watching God work, after watching the supernatural, 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 how could you be so natural? And their conclusion was, well, we thought that was you. We didn't know you were going to share. We didn't know you were going to share supernatural with us. That's kind of amazing. What would that look like? And then we hear Paul say what it would look like is people in unity. What it would look like is people that, that don't have to accept the horizontal as defining themselves. So I want to take a moment to just say, what would it look like for us to live naturally supernatural? And then I want to kind of land the plane by just asking a few questions. So the first uh, practice that we do as a church is hear and obey. And I want to suggest that that's one of the ways that we grow in being naturally supernatural is that we tune our ear to hearing God and tune our will to quickly following what we hear. So let me give you an example from Scripture. In Luke 2, we have this picture of Jesus who's 12 years old. He's taken with his family uh, to Jerusalem where it's the tradition that people are bar mitzvahized, which means that they become part of the community. They're not community by virtue of their parents. They actually become community members at 12. Our junior high department, our senior high department, our community members. And so here's Jesus at 12 years old. He goes in, he's um, talking to the rabbis, and, and the parents leave. And they're out of Jerusalem a day. And they're out of Jerusalem a day, and I'm sure Joseph is going, hey, where's the kid? And Mary's going, I don't know, he's probably over with Uncle Ben. No, I've been over to Uncle Ben's, he's not there. Well, maybe he's over at Cousin Reuben's. They go over to Reuben's, nobody's there. And they kind of ask around, they realize he's not here. And Joseph is going, you know, that kid's been independent all his life. And they make their way back to Jerusalem. And Mary, I mean, can't you just hear her? In the NIV, it gets translated this way. She looks at him and goes, why have you treated us this way? That's not someone who is really happy they've given birth to the Son of God. So even though he's never sinned, he's immature. Immaturity is not a sin. Now, those of you who are my age and you're immature, staying immature might be, but uh, immaturity is not a sin, okay? Um, and so he's growing out of it. In fact, when we get to Luke 2, verse 51, it says they went down to Nazareth with them. Uh, he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. How does somebody who's never sinned grow in favor with God? I mean, I think I spend most of my life trying to undo my stuff, thinking that if I can get down to zero, God's going to say, yay. And the picture in the Bible is that God's given us Jesus who says, reset. Not you reset, not I reset. Jesus resets us to forgive him. And as we get this reset in Jesus, here, here's who we have a Jesus who's growing in favor with God. He's learning how to live his supernatural life. He, he just knew he was supposed to be about the Father's business. He tells that to Mary and Joseph, and Luke says they didn't know what he was saying. That's most parents talking to their 12-year-old. 
It's very natural. And yet Jesus is saying, I know I've got a supernatural bent toward, that's pulling on my life. When they get to his first miracle, after he's been baptized, he's in his early 30s, and he's at a wedding where Mary is at, and Jesus and his disciples have been invited as well. And Mary comes up to him, and um, in verse 3 it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. The NIV translates Jesus' response, dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has, yet, has not yet come. And listen to Mary's response to the, the people that are the servants in the, uh, of the wedding. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary actually, I think, was ahead of Jesus on the curve a bit. She'd spent her life listening to the Holy Spirit wreck her life. You know, she had wedding plans and all of a sudden she's pregnant. And she's saying, I don't know how this can be. I'm a virgin. And they're saying, Holy Spirit. He's going, hey, I don't have mystery. Miracle. I don't think she's going, yay for miracles. I think she's saying, are you kidding? I would just like to look better. I would just like more money. I would just like to live on the, on the slope of Nazareth rather than down in the non-view homes. Those would be miracles Baby out of wedlock, I don't know. And she's had to learn how to listen and embrace the supernatural in her life when it isn't her agenda. And when she looks at the wine, I believe she's feeling that Holy Spirit thing and goes over to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. He's going, life's hard. You know, should have planned ahead. I RSVP'd. I don't know why they're out of wine. And she's saying to the servants, do whatever he says. She postures herself for the supernatural happening. He hasn't said, oh, you're right. What should we do? He hasn't said, I'll handle it. He said, don't, wh why is it my problem? And she's saying, make sure you do whatever he says. She's, she, she's leaning in, expecting the supernatural to happen. And, and Jesus ends up hearing it as well and turning the water to wine. I want to suggest that there are times where we hear and we say that couldn't possibly be it. Somebody makes a suggestion to us and we go, why are you telling me that? That's not my thing. And we don't take the time to kind of work it through listening what, what am I, what's my role in this? Why has that come my way? What, what am I supposed to do with that? And listening for how we would be part of obeying in what God's doing there. I think that's part of the practice we have of hear and obey that cultivates us growing in wisdom and favor with God and man. Hospitality is the second practice that we suggest uh, is transformational in that we would open our home up. Open our home up especially to somebody who couldn't reciprocate. But what would it look like to be hospitable to God? To clearing space in our lives. To not living from margin to margin but actually having the space to listen. Having the space to be able to take a wound that might keep you from hearing him and letting him heal you 
asking him to be at home. This past weekend, I went up and stayed at my oldest daughter's home, and uh, I took my dog, and uh, she has three kids, and between the three kids and the dog, uh, I came home a day early. And so um, uh, in the midst of uh, going and visiting my grandkids and my, my uh, daughter and her husband and, and, and trying to figure out that, that whole thing, it's interesting, because my dog is like you know a year and a half old, and... Um, my wife's done a great job of training my dog to, I mean, we, we um, have a string of bells on our front door and our back door, and our dog goes over and rings the bell when it needs to go outside, okay? So we go uh, to my daughter's house. She doesn't have bells. Imagine that. So the dog's going, I don't know how to get out of here, I, and I don't, there's no bell to ring. So the dog just kind of does dog thing, and then there, you've got three little kids going, oh, gross, you know, running around the house, and I'm going, yeah, I think I'm going home. <laughs> no, um... I wasn't, I was invited, I was a guest, I was welcomed, but it wasn't home. And I think sometimes we invite Jesus into our lives, but we keep him as a guest and we don't let him rearrange anything to be at home. He doesn't get to call any shots. It's not his house. You've in a sense trapped him there and hoped he's going to wait until you die. And, and a trapped Jesus isn't nearly as cool as a free Jesus. And, and when we invite him into our lives, we invite him to make himself at home. If he goes, I, I don't like what we're watching, then quit watching it. I don't like the hostility of this relationship, then bring peace to that relationship. Being hospitable. And the third practice that I think addresses it is the idea of generosity. That when you experience that amazing feeling of being forgiven and somebody's looking at you and they know they've blown it and you get to be the one who graces them with forgiveness. When you get to be the one who graces somebody with, I must have just misunderstood you and give them margin rather than hold them to the tightest of standards hoping that God doesn't do the same to you. So when we learn to hear and obey and we make him at home in our lives and we're generous with the grace that he gives us that we would lavish it on other people as well, we're starting to posture ourselves to live in the supernatural in a very natural way. Rather than standing off somewhere asking God to do a miracle over there, getting in the middle of the mess and just like Jesus in the middle of the storm said, peace, peace. We get to bring peace to chaos when we live off of that narrative, the kingdom of God, rather than the horizontal we live in the world we see. So those are just a, a few of the things that I think are ways we can. You know, the more I talk to people, listen to people's stories, think back over some of the people that I've known that I think function in the supernatural it's, it's, it all, always starts to be personal stories. And so I'm going to follow suit for a minute by asking you a few questions and giving you a few experiences that God's allowed me to experience. The first question I want to ask is, do you believe there's a difference between being open to the supernatural and expecting the supernatural? Is there a difference between being open to the supernatural and expecting the supernatural? So there was a 
time when I uh, was a director for this uh, national organization, well, actually, as a North American director, so Canada and the United States, to uh, do training for youth pastors. And I was speaking at a conference up in Canada, and I brought my two sons with me uh, because the guy who was doing the music was a guy that they really liked. They had all of his uh, albums and stuff. His name is Paul Oakley. He uh, is from the United Kingdom. And um, as he was leading worship in one of the sessions, he said, I'm just going to pray this prayer for vision. He said, God, would you give people a vision of how they could impact their world? And he went, Whew. you know, and I, I, kinda, I didn't know if he was sighing, you know, but when he went, Whew, I just, you could see the heads just start, as, as it just kind of moved back. And my son was way towards the back, my oldest son, and at the time, my oldest son was a, a student at uh, Trinity University up in Canada, and he was a, a drama major, or as Canadians say, drama major. And um, he um, said, Dad, when, when it came to my row, I saw all van downtown Vancouver and the brokenness of, of the city because he'd been down there several times to go to plays and different things as part of his major. And he goes, it just all came to me, and I was just brokenhearted over the city. And it happened after student after student after student who was at that conference. I went, man, I would be so afraid to do that in case it didn't work. And so um, I started asking God, God, could I, could I have the boldness to do that? Don't worry, I'm not going to breathe on you. But um, I said, could I have the boldness to do that? And so I spoke at this uh, pastor's conference in Denver, Colorado. And towards the end of the talk, I said, okay, I don't believe that very many of you believe God loves you. I believe you're, you feel like you're failing and, and you're just hoping that God is okay with that, your best effort. So I'm gonna pray and I don't want you to stand unless you hear God tell you I love you and I just start praying. And one by one, almost every person stood up. And one guy afterwards, his name is Frank, he was a youth pastor in Kansas City. He came up to me and he said, when I heard you say that, I said, I am not standing unless I really hear that. And he goes, as soon as I said that, I really heard that. And I went, why? Why would I aim for less? Of like, here's, here's a neat little application for Monday, write it down. Rather than ask people to encounter God, now, I understand Jesus, even in his hometown, it says he didn't do many miracles because of lack of faith. I understand there's a part on our side where we can block. But I also believe on our side we can block because we think we're just open to it, but we would be shocked if something ever happened. Second um, question I want to ask is, what would it look like for you to live expectantly? What would it look like? Um, I was, when I was directing that organization, the last year I worked there, I was on the road 180 days, and that was just not sustainable for me or my family. And I knew that it was time for me to either change how I did my job or change jobs. And I had to speak at this youth uh, conference that was about three hours north of Toronto, but I had to fly into Toronto, get a rental car, and then um, you know, go to the camp, come back. So I had some friends in Toronto that were 
They're great prayers. In fact, one guy is hired um, by 12 churches in his town to be the intercessor for his town. And so I called uh, this friend of mine. I said, Tim, if I take an extra day after my conference, can I stop at your house? Can you pull some of those prayers together and can you pray over me? So we did that. And I um, pull into his house. There's five or six people there ready to pray for me. And they're praying over me for uh, discernment and direction on, on what I should be doing. And um, this one guy goes, oh, oh, oh. And he got up and he went over to this table and he starts writing on this piece of paper. And he says, God's telling me you're going home. And I go, you mean like I'm going to die? And he goes, uh, no, no, what's home for you? And I go, well, I grew up in Portland. And he goes, well, is that home for you? And I said, well, actually, the first place where my wife and I lived on our own, had uh, children, kind of raised them without any kind of external family uh, around, we lived in Seattle. And he pulled up this piece of paper and he'd written Seattle on it. Now, that's creepy to me, you know? Um, and I, it wasn't like I moved to Seattle because of the paper, but it was very confirming that God was doing something in our lives. And so we took that and started praying about, God, is that where he wanted us to go? And we went and planted a church there. What would it look like if you lived expectantly rather than simply open? The third question, how would a relationship you have now change if you were expecting the supernatural. Think of a relationship you have right now and that if you were expecting the supernatural, what would that look like? Last week I told you that um, my wife had cancer for seven years and then she died. And during those seven years were seventh grade through twelfth grade of my youngest daughter. And she said, for seven years, I prayed one prayer, and God said, no, why would I follow that God? This house has been a house of sorrow, because all you've talked about is cancer. Why would I stay here? And she left our home for over a year and a half. And the year she left, she graduated from high school, and that same year, my oldest daughter graduated from college, and my youngest son graduated from college. And my wife and I had planned this trip to Europe as their graduation present. And our youngest said, I'm, I'm not interested in going. Just blew it off. And so as we're there, we went into Westminster Abbey. And as you make this tour through Westminster Abbey, you come out to this other place. There's a prayer space. And there's a place with prayer candles. And so all of us lit a candle. And when we got out of there, I said, I don't think it's like a birthday candle. I think we get to tell each other what we prayed about. So I said, what did you guys pray about? And all of us said, we prayed for Jenny, my youngest daughter. And... Um, it wasn't more than a year or so later that um, her mom died. And it wasn't too much longer after that that I met Sue. And Sue and I got married. And then Sue and I took her youngest son and my youngest daughter to Europe with us. And my youngest daughter had started to come back to Jesus. And um, we went into this Westminster Abbey and we walked through the thing and we came out to the prayer space and I said, see these candles? She goes, yeah. I go, four years ago, there were four of us who lit candles. Your sister, your brother, me, and your mom who's no longer with us. And we all prayed for you that you'd return. So it's pretty cool that you're here. And then she went and lit a candle. And... Um, I'm so grateful that God answers prayers. And that what do I do in the midst of a girl who's turned her back towards our, her family and God? I don't turn my back towards her. 
I, I expect the supernatural. And sometimes I don't want to expect the supernatural because I can't handle the heartbreak of day after day after day of it not happening. But that's Jesus looking at his disciples and go, where's your faith? Lean into the supernatural and trust God with the agenda, not lean into the supernatural. And if God doesn't fit your agenda, he did nothing. He still gets to be God even when you lean into it. But we think that somehow because we don't like what he's doing, if we disengage, then we won't get hurt. Disengaging is self-destruction. We were designed to live in the supernatural. We are spirit. We are people that are worth a rescue. God didn't even become an angel. He became a human because we were the ones on the rescue plan. We're the ones who are valued. Some of you think that if you saw an angel, you'd see a miracle, but you're seeing miracles sitting right next to you. We're the image of God. We're the ones that God has said is of highest value, worth the life of his son, that he might rescue us. So my uh, last question, what keeps you from being filled? What keeps you from leaning in? For some of you, I think it could be fear. Fear that it won't work. Fear that you've tried it before. Fear that God might do that for someone else, but not for you. And so I'd rather not be disappointed so we don't try. For others of you, it might just be that you haven't seen it and you've never asked to see it. And for some, it may actually be that you've just never even connected with Jesus. I mean, you are open, but you've never really engaged. I want to invite you today that if that's you, if you're someone who has heard about Jesus, maybe even church has been very familiar to you for years, but you realize that as far as naturally leaning into the supernatural, it's just never been part of your experience. I want to invite you today to have that be your experience. Jesus invites people to come to him. He invites us all to trust him. In fact, he invites us to not be afraid. So as we look at this table today, this table is a sign of a God who did a miracle. He left heaven and took on humanity and lived as a human and died in our place. And he rose and he lives today. And that resurrection power is what gives us life that we might live in the supernatural. So I want to ask you today that if you um, are afraid, that you would go to one of the doors and you'd pray with somebody that God would give you faith to replace your fear. I want to ask that if you've never connected with Jesus, you go to the doors and talk to someone about how, would, how could I make that not just a force, but a relationship. And for those of you who maybe have just been distant, like my younger daughter, I want to invite you to come home. He, he's not going to hold anything against you. 
his welcoming arms that you might experience his love and his life and that naturally you might traffic in the supernatural. We've had people here that, that have had ailments and people here have prayed for them and those ailments aren't there. We have elders that pray on a consistent basis for people as they come back and say, I want prayer. And God has shown up in those prayers. But it's not whoever's up here and it's not ever whoever's back there. God intends to scatter himself throughout Portland in all these containers. And I would ask you to open yourself up today to let him be the one that would fill you. So I'm going to pray to that end. And I would ask that even as you come to the table today, just receive the grace that no one deserves. That we might be agents of grace to a city that doesn't deserve it. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices, that this isn't a life that's lived in the natural and an afterlife that's in the supernatural, but eternal life begins now. So let us live in that world, not afraid to ask you for miracles, more than just open to them, expectant that you are going to heal lives and relationships through us as hollow and inhabited children of God. I pray that would be our experience as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.